Malachi 3. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe unto the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore, put me to test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that, I will not, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be the land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. All right, if you have a Bible, get it out, open it up to the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand, and uh, Sarah will grab one for you, and I'll even tell you what page it's on. It's going to be on page 802. 802. Uh, We need a couple of Bibles. Katie, can you help uh, distribute the Bibles? Hey, is everybody doing okay this morning? Thank you, um, Matt, and... The rest of you for leading us in worship, man, that's, that's really good and helpful as we think about what it means to sing songs and say things to God that are true. So I'm teaching this series through the book of Malachi, and if you're a guest today, you might be wondering why uh, we would be talking about the content that we're going to be talking about. Well, the reason is, is because as I simply teach through the Bible, this is the content that comes up. And it's been a fun series, and I'm looking forward to just sharing with you what the meaning of the passage is. But before I do that, I want to tell you two things. First of all, in your seat, there's a card. One side says Malachi, Shake the People, which is the title of this series. And on the other side is information about a couple of things. I want to point out one of the things, because we need your help. Next Sunday, we're going to be back in the fall um, program for our Kid City, which is our discipleship program for our children that happens on Sunday morning. And we have some great leaders, great people that are helping back there, but we always need to invite new people to participate. And, and so if you're interested in helping work with the kids and, and you say, well, I don't know much about kids or I don't know much about how to disciple somebody, you know what, we're going to equip you and teach you and show you. In this church, we've got a growing number of children, which is wonderful, and we need a growing ministry of leaders back there to help them. So if you sign up, you'll be in a rotation to help about once a month, which is not like every week, so it's not like if you sign up, then all of a sudden you disappear and you don't get to come in here. So it's a part of being a part of the church family, so I want to encourage you to do that. So if you're interested, pick up that Connect card and write your name on there and then write the phrase, I don't hate children. And so that's how we'll know whether or not you want to serve. All right. Uh, also, I just want to recognize somebody here. I, it, on occasion, we have the privilege of having one of my heroes with us. And uh, Pastor Elmo Johnson is sitting right here. And would you just stand up, Pastor? And Pastor Elmo has been a, a pastor in this community. Thank you. He's been a pastor in this community, Rosa Sharon, for how many years now? 33 years. So this guy is, thank you for being here. I didn't know he was going to come. 
but it's a real honor to have you with us, and um, I hope that people have treated you uh, nicely. Uh, I expect that they, they have. Did anybody... Mm, thank you. Thank you, Pastor Elmo. This guy is truly a hero of mine, and I appreciate him being here this morning. So here we go. In Matthew chapter 3, we... Yeah, Malachi. Thank you for the correction. That's how it goes here. That's how it goes here, Elmo. People do not miss a thing. Um, Malachi chapter 3, on page 802 is where we're going to be. And I want to warn you, there are some parts of this message that are going to be disturbing to hear. You know, the primary work of God is to reveal His glory. And His chosen vehicle is people. His glory is most evident when people are rescued from the danger of sin, and oftentimes it is through other people who commit themselves to helping those people. There's a book called A Field Guide to Getting Lost written by Rebecca Solnit. She tells the story of her friend Sally, who is a part of a search and rescue team in the Rocky Mountains. Sally still remembers the frantic search for a lost 11-year-old boy who was deaf and losing his sight. The boy wandered off during a late afternoon game of hide-and-seek, and because he was deaf, he was particularly hard to find. The boy had been blowing a whistle given him for just such an occasion, but he could not hear how close he was to a nearby stream, which might, let him, might have led him to safety. The roar of the water made his signal impossible for those searching for him to hear. After a harrowing night on his own, the sun came up and he started blowing his whistle again. The search and rescue team finally found him very cold, but okay. Sally and other search and rescue experts say that the key to survival often hinges on one thing, knowing and admitting that you are lost. That's why kids are found more often than adults in these kinds of situations. Kids, when they are lost, they admit it and they stay put. They don't stray far. They usually curl up in a sheltered place and wait for their rescuers. And unlike many adults who get lost in places like the Rockies, Kids don't desperately try to save themselves. Instead, they aren't afraid to stop and admit that they need help. You know, if you feel lost, the first step is acknowledging that you are lost. You will more easily be found. The disturbing stories in life are those people who are unwilling to admit that they are lost and they continue to suffer. There are consequences. It's a harder part of the story to hear because the ending is not as happy. Well, Malachi is writing this letter, and he gives words that are hard to hear. It is directed toward a group of people that continually walk away from God. They're lost in their own sin, and God will not let it go. He will continue to seek and save the lost. The group of people that Malachi is addressing is called the Israelites, Now, if you were here the last couple of weeks, this will be a little bit of repeat, but I want to help you to understand what Malachi is saying in context. Uh, The background for the Israelites is that God has chosen this group of people for a special kind of relationship with him. He, He promised to preserve them and to provide a savior from among them that would be a blessing to all people. We now know that that savior's name is Jesus. 
He also made them promise to obey his laws. And if they obeyed his laws, they would experience blessing. But if they disobey his laws, they would suffer. At the time that Malachi writes this oracle, Israel had many years of walking lost. Uh, Sure, in their history, there were times where they obeyed God's laws, and when they did, they were blessed. But whenever they disobeyed God's laws, they suffered. When they obeyed God's laws, they enjoyed fellowship with him. When they disobeyed God's laws, they felt distance from him and had a hard time hearing him. Malachi writes during a time that they have abandoned their commitments to God, and they're suffering for it. Here's the thing about God. He will always call people to himself. As creator, he knows that people will best experience their lives when they are walking with him. And his love compels him to be rescuer for people in sin. Malachi's words sound harsh, but they are in fact the most loving thing that God can do to shake his people. So just to help you understand what happened in chapter 1 and chapter 2 before we open up chapter 3, The overall issue that Malachi addresses is that the people are not bringing their best to him in worship. As an example, they're not obeying God's rule for animal sacrifice. So in this day, uh, the people were commanded to come to the temple with the best animal from their flock to be sacrificed. And when the best animal was brought, the shed blood of the animal covered areas of sin since the last time they had sacrificed. And this is how God set it up. We may not fully understand it, but this is how God set it up. And it gives deep meaning to the language in the New Testament that talks about Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. So John, is actually talked about in the early part of Malachi chapter 3, says these words when he sees Jesus. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. So whenever Jesus died on a cross, he died as the final sacrificial lamb. Well, Malachi is on the Israelites because they're not bringing their best in worship. They're bringing the leftovers, the lame, the sick, the least valuable from their flocks. And if you were here the last couple weeks, this is a bit of a review for you, but it's important that we understand it because it's easy to forget the things that are hard to hear. They looked religious but their worship was empty. So they were coming to the temple. They knew how to to go through the motion, but God knew their hearts. Their worship was empty. They were not bringing their best to God. And God would not let it go. Have you ever just wished God would leave you alone about something? I mean, really. Have you ever been like, okay, God, I know that this is an issue in my life, but would you just leave me alone about it? There are a lot of other areas of my life where I'm doing okay, but this one area, I just don't want to give it up. I don't want to change. It's too hard. Or, or you, have you ever wondered or wished that God would change his mind about what he requires of you? That's oftentimes what we do. In fact, in more contemporary preaching, that's what preachers tend to do, is change what God requires of people so that more people will gather to hear what they have to say. But that, in fact, is the most unloving thing to do. I bet you've gotten annoyed. I know I have by the ways that God continues to bring that issue to your mind. God, just leave me alone. But God will not 
leave you alone. And there are ways that we try to ignore God. You can quit church. That's what happens sometimes. You can quit church. You can quit being around people who are talking about God and what God requires and actually teaching the Bible. You can reject the messengers. You can say that the preacher is wrong or that he has ulterior motives. I mean, I've seen both, and I've experienced both myself. But God will not quit ringing the bell. In May of 1985... At a soccer stadium in Bradford, England, hundreds of people were injured and 56 people died. So what happened was a small fire started in one part of the stadium. The people ignored the alarm to get out, thinking it was not a big deal. The fire spread quickly over the wooden roof and overwhelmed those that were sitting in that part of the stadium, and they refused to leave. Even as the fire spreads and people refused to believe that the, serious, the seriousness of the situation. And according to reports, there were even some young fans that danced and sang in front of a raging fire while others threw stones at the gathering television crews. Psychiatrist Dr. Stephen Groves points to research that shows we usually don't respond when a fire alarm rings. Instead of leaving a building immediately, we stand around and wait for more clues. But then, even with more information, we still won't make a move, and sometimes that proves deadly. Here's what Gross says. After 25 years as a psychotherapist, not a psychotherapist, a psychoanalyst, I guess would be a better way of saying it, he says, I can't say that this surprises me. We resist change. Committing ourselves to a small change, even one that is unmistakably in our best interest, is often more frightening than ignoring a dangerous situation. We don't want an exit if we don't know exactly where it's going to take us, even or perhaps especially in an emergency. We want to know what new story we're stepping into before we exit the old one. Here's the thing about God. God will not stop ringing the alarms to get us to safety. He's not going to leave us alone in the danger of sinful choices. And the reason that God knows this and will do this is because according to Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. God isn't going to change because he knows what's best for your life. He's going to continue ringing the alarm. And so maybe you've heard an alarm in your heart God's trying to speak to you so that you will repent of an area of sin so that you can experience the full life that God has for you. And maybe, just maybe, you'll be tired of ignoring that alarm before it kills you. God loves you so much, he will not let it go. Until your last breath, he's going to work to restore you to the life that he's created to live. You can reject him, and some of you may choose to do that and have done that. You can reject his messengers, but he will not leave you alone. If you repent, he gets glory, you get life and peace. If you continue in sin, you will suffer. That's that's hard, isn't it? I mentioned to you at the outset of this series that there are things in here that we're going to want to give a thumbs down to, sort of like the music that we listen to that we don't like. But we cannot just hear the parts of the Bible that are easy to listen to. We have to listen to all of it because it's all a part of God's playlist for our lives. 
So this introduction leads me to the part of chapter 3 that we're going to look at today. And Malachi oracles the people. Everybody say oracles. Because they are robbing God. Their sin is how they're using the resources God has provided them. So the first part of the letter, Malachi takes issue with the quality of their offering. You know, that rather than bringing the best from their flock, they were bringing the lame, the sick, the, the least worthy. Here, Malachi transitions a bit to talk about the quantity of the grain offering that they're bringing. Verse 8, I'm going to read it again, and then we're going to unpack it quickly. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put to me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So what's Malachi taking issue with here? Or more importantly, what is God trying to bring to the Israelites' mind? It's the issue of the quality or the quantity of resources they're bringing to the temple. So the tithe was literally one-tenth of all the crop produce. It's how the temple priests and the religious leaders survived. People would bring a tithe to the temple. The temple priests and religious leaders did not own land to grow crops on. And without the tithe, the ministers of the temple would suffer. And they'd begin to try to find some sort of sustenance or provision outside of the calling on their lives. So by not bringing the tithe and the offering, Malachi says the people were robbing God. Now, I just want to be honest. As I read this, I don't know about you, but I hear it and I'm like, oh, that seems a little strong. I mean, it seems a little strong, right? I mean, Malachi's saying that, that you're, they're robbing God. I mean, kind of a big jump. I mean, maybe they're not bringing as much as they should, but they're bringing something possibly, right? I mean, they're bringing something. I mean, they're there to hear Malachi talk to them about what's going on. Uh, and it, to me, it seems a little strong, but it's what God's word says. And even though it's hard for me and you to hear, we must listen. And there are consequences, according to Malachi, when people do not obey God's command. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. It's interesting, really, to consider that this part is in response to the people's question in verse 7, how shall we return? So in the first two chapters, and even the first part of chapter 3, which we'll talk some about next week also, uh, the people are being oracled by Malachi for their sin. And the people are beginning to talk about like, okay, well, we, yes, okay, thank you for reminding us of the covenant that we've made with God to obey his word. And they begin asking, how are we to return to God? How are we to get back in this right relationship with God? They ask the question. And the answer to that question, how shall we return, begins with how they're using their resources. 
Why is that? Because Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. A person's heart goes where their money goes, and the larger issue here than money or grain is that their hearts are far from God. And the evidence of this is the quality and the quantity of the offering in worship. So here's the point. God is not as concerned with their money or their offering, although very practically it provides for the ministries of the temple. God is primarily concerned with their hearts. The way a person spends their money is the greatest indicator of what is in their hearts. That may be hard to hear, but it is true. The way a person spends their money is the greatest indicator of what's in their hearts. So at the root of this sin was that their hearts were not aligned with God's heart for their lives. And so here's what God commands that they do. Chapter 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse. The storehouse was a, a place in the temple where they kept the grain that the people brought. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. If the people are going to bring the full tithe, then the ministries of the temple can flourish. If they do not bring the full tithe, then the ministries of the temple will suffer. Then we read this breathtaking phrase. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. I spent quite some time looking for anywhere else in the Bible where God Almighty tells people to put him to the test. There are other places in the Bible where people put God to the test by sinning and they suffered for it. But nowhere else in the Bible that I could find, you may know one, if you do find one, please tell me. Nowhere else in the Bible could I find a place where God Almighty says, put me to the test. And what God says is that if you put me to the test, you bring the full tithe into the storehouse, then these three things will happen to you, Israel. He says, I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Who would like that? Three of you. All right, I'm with you. Let's make it four. I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there's no more need. I mean, to me, that's very poetic, and I'm not exactly sure all that it means, but it sounds awesome, and I want to be a part of that. He also says, I will rebuke the devourer for you, which very practically for them meant that their crops would flourish, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. I want that. And then he says, All the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight. 
These three promises are a reaffirmation of the obedience, blessing relationship that God makes with them in the Mosaic Covenant. So the people were experiencing consequences. So these three things were not happening because they were sinning against God. They were not bringing their tithe to God. They were not bringing their best offering of animal for sacrifice to God. And so they were suffering for it. The implication is that they weren't experiencing all of God's blessing. And the blessings of God were simply simply there to be poured out on them, and all they had to do was obey. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to be a part of this. And so we have to think about, okay, so what does this mean about us as people that are on this side of the cross? How does it play out in our lives? How can we think about this as believers today When we see these words where God says, put me to the test, and if you bring your full tithe, I will pour out blessings on you. Does it mean that if we give God a dollar, he'll give us 10? There are some people that preach that. I do not think that's what the Bible reveals. Does it mean that we ought to think about generosity as an expression of faith? I think so. Does it mean that all of us must wrestle with that part of our hearts that wants to hold on to our resources because we kind of believe that they're actually ours? Well, the Bible's quite clear. Nothing that you own is yours. It's all God's. He's entrusted it to you. And part of relating to him and understanding your purpose in this life is holding it all very open-handed and saying, God, how can I honor you with this? How can I worship you with these things. So the Apostle Paul talks about generosity. I'm not sure that it has everything that we need to know in this specific passage about generosity, but there's something here that can help us think about it as Christians. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly, and he's talking about an offering that he's collecting to help the poor in Jerusalem, from people that do not live in Jerusalem, whoever sows sparingly, also more generally, to the work of the Lord, to the ministries of Almighty God, whoever sows sparingly, in other words, you don't give much or you give leftovers or you spend all your money and then at the end of the month, if you have a few bucks, you give it to God and you kind of pat yourself on the back, that would be sowing sparingly or you do not give it all because, you know, I mean, does the, does the church really need more money? Look at the preacher. He's got a new truck. You know, I mean, look, look, like whoever sows sparingly, that would be that category, will also reap sparingly. So what you're ultimately hurting is yourself. And whoever sows bountifully, everybody say bountifully. We like that word. Elmo, I know you're with me. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap. What? So this is on this side of the cross. So we can talk about the Old Testament. Well, we're not in the Old Testament anymore, and the tithe doesn't work like it did in the Old Testament. And that may or may not be true, and we can debate that all day long. I don't think the New Testament teaches that we ought to give the Lord any less. He says, if you were to reap bountifully, then you are to sow bountifully. Verse 7 is important. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. So if you feel like I got you in a headlock right now, then that's not for me. 
But if you feel the Lord in your heart saying, you know what, I want to be, I want to make you a radically generous person, then you can make that decision. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a what? God loves a cheerful giver. That was like pressure off of me. I feel no pressure to try to get in any, out of any one of you uh, generosity. Because I know that the Spirit of God is saying to you right now, you, I'm, I'm ready, God Almighty is ready to pour out, open the heavens and bless you. And that may or may not include financial blessing. And if you're willing to open your hands and say, Lord, what will you have me do? What will you have me bring to the ministry of the church for your glory and for your fame, then then I'll do it. I mean, what a wonderful position to be in. The happiest, most freed up people I know are those that are also the most generous people I know. Let me say that again. Because part of the problem with us getting freed up to be generous, to advance the mission of God in this city and in the world, is that we believe that the way that we spend our money in other ways will make us the most happy. The happiest, most freed up people I know are those that are the most generous people I know. Period. So in the Old Testament, people gave to get a blessing. On this side of the cross, we give because we have been blessed by God. And the greatest blessing to all of us is salvation provided by a generous God through Jesus Christ. So we don't give to the Lord To get a blessing, we give because we have been blessed. Which is why it's so important that you understand the gospel. And the gospel says that apart from Christ, you are dead. Unable to raise yourself from the dead. But God, in his infinite mercy and grace and power, reached down through his love and rescued you and raised you into new life. No longer are you separated from God because of your sin, but you are a child of God. Your sin is not only not covered by the blood of Jesus, it is erased by the blood of Jesus. And if that means anything to you, then you respond to God by living generously so that other people can be impacted by that same message. This is the New Testament ideal of giving. And so you might say to me, well, Russell, how much should we give? And I would say, how grateful are you for your salvation? There's no greater reward for the person that gives more or less. I think probably a better way of looking at it is, uh, God, what have you given me, and how can I respond in, gener- in gratitude to you as an act of worship? And for this person, it may be a dollar. For this person, it may be $1,000. And you say, who gets the money? I'll tell you who gets the money. The Lord gets the money, and the Lord uses it to advance his mission in this city and in other places in the world. That's how we think about generosity and giving. 
Malachi is oracling the people because their hearts are not with God. And they say, how do we return to God? How do we make sure our hearts are with God? The first thing he talks about is money. Why is this? Because money is that thing that reveals our heart. It's tough to hear, people. I know. And this message is very convicting to me. As I read it and examine my own life and my own level of generosity to the Lord, I have to consider where am I spending my money? Is my heart there more than with the Lord? Money reveals our heart. This is why Jesus in the New Testament talks about giving and generosity and money more than any other one thing. Jesus isn't concerned about having money. Jesus knows that our money is a, uh, reveals our hearts and what he wants is people's hearts. So if you're giving God your leftovers, that would be sowing sparingly. I mean, you can do that. But if you're giving to God first, whenever he provides for you from your work, then I promise you the heavens will be open and there will be a blessing poured out on you. And sometimes that's a financial blessing. I don't think it's always a financial blessing, but at the very least, the blessing will be knowing that God is going to use those resources to impact other people's lives. That is our definitive position on giving in the life of this church. The invitation here is an invitation to the joy of radical generosity. How will you respond? So in just a moment, we're going to continue in worship by the taking of the Lord's Supper. But before we do, I want to just share with you a story about how the generosity of the people of this church has impacted this community in a very tangible way. There's a program in the city called Music Doing Good in Schools. And it's a program that this school, Gregory Lincoln, has participated in for a few years. Their funding has been, I think, through the Independent School District, Houston Independent School District. But this year, for whatever reason, their funding got cut. So someone from the faculty uh, reached out to me and said, hey, we have this program. And what the program does is that it allows kids to participate in uh, fine arts to to do a, a music program that they will then perform at the Hobby Center. And uh, to me, one of the greatest privileges that we have as a church is coming alongside the leadership of this school, along with other pastors like Pastor Elmo and other pastors in the community, and saying, what is your vision? How can we support it? We, want, we care about this community. We care about these kids, whether or not they come to this church. And uh, the budget was strained at GLEC. They were facing the possibility of having to leave this program because they could no longer pay the fee. And uh, Cheryl Jones, who works here, emailed me. And I reached out to our leaders and I said, is this, is this who we are? Do we want to be a part of this? And, and of course, the answer was yes. We, wanna, we paid the fee. It was several thousand dollars. And it allowed these kids to participate in this program, Music Doing Good. In fact, uh, John and Sarah Curtis, I know John's here. I think Sarah's working this morning. John and Sarah Curtis went to the actual show. I was not able to go because of my schedule, but John went and sat right next to the principal of the school, right? Cheryl Jones. And, uh, and just got to see these kids, man. And, and for some of these kids, it's giving them exposure to a world that they've not grown up in. 
And uh, let me tell you something. That would not have happened if not for the generosity of this church. But there are other things that God wants to do in and through us in this community. And the question is, will you respond to this invitation the joy of radical generosity? Now, one last thing you may be asking, how much should I give? Is it a tithe? Is it 10%? Well, I'll let you and the Lord work that out, and I certainly want you to be thinking about that. My understanding in the New Testament is that we're to give practically, like look at our budget, what can we afford to give? And sacrificially, look at our budget, what do we have to give up? And these tithes and offering are not to me, they're not to this church, they're to the Lord. So if you were to say to me, Russell, how much should I give? What I would say is this, start giving a percentage of your income regularly and begin to move towards that 10% and just see what God does. As the Lord told the Israelites, put me to the test, I just want to invite you to think about that. See if God won't open up the heavens for you if you will step out in this way. Will you have to give some things up? Absolutely, you will. But I promise you, you'll be worshiping the Lord and your heart will be aligned with the Lord and your heart will be filled with joy. And all of this is for his glory and his fame in this city. Let's think on and pray about these things. Would you bow your head with me? So right there where you are, Would you just, uh, whatever is in your heart right now, if you want to tell the Lord, God, I don't want to listen to what you're saying. I look forward to next week. Go ahead and say that. If you want to tell the Lord, God, help me to be a more radically generous person so that other people can be impacted in the same way that I have tell him that. Maybe you're here and you've not yet crossed over the line of faith. You've not yet accepted what God has done for you by sending His only begotten Son, Jesus, to die on the cross. You want to do that. Do you want to have your sin forgiven? Do you want to be made at peace with God? And you're probably pretty smart and pretty put together. And you think, well, I I may or may not need Christianity. Let me tell you, God loves you so much, he will not leave you alone. Respond in faith by saying to God something like this, God, I realize that I'm not perfect. I've sinned. I'm separated from you. And I want my sin forgiven. I want to begin this new life of walking with Christ. So we're going to just take a moment and Matt's going to lead us in a song of response and then I'm going to come back and lead the Lord's Supper. 
you just want to sit there and pray, you can. If you'd like to stand to your feet and sing, that would be okay too. I'll be up here in the front. If you want to come up here and sit next to me and for me to pray with you, I'd be happy to do that. Let's just think about all that God's stirring in our heart right now.